Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. Lord Justice Sedley famously said, Freedom of speech includes not only the inoffensive, but the irritating, the contentious, the eccentric, the heretical, the unwelcome and the provocative, provided it does not tend to provoke violence. Freedom only to speak inoffensively is not worth having. Yet two recent cases have shown that the courts are well prepared to sanction the use of powers to limit or prevent protests that have contained a strong religious or moral <coughs> element. I'm Deborah Britstone of 3D Slisters, and with me to discuss this is George Thomas, a barrister from Sargent's Inn. George, two recent cases have required the High Court and Court of Appeal to consider in detail the use by local authorities of different powers contained in the Anti-Social Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act 2014 to limit or prevent protests that have contained a strong religious or moral element. To what extent are the courts prepared to sanction the use of these powers in relation to types of activities that perhaps would not immediately spring to mind when the words antisocial behaviour are heard? Well, the short answer in two words is very prepared. Uh, judging by these two decisions, firstly in the case of Dolgeriu and the London Borough of Ealing, uh, which was a Court of Appeal decision, and secondly the case of Birmingham City Council and ASFAR. Although the Act is on the face of it designed to cover low-level, normal, day-to-day antisocial behaviour, we can see it being applied in a very different context in these cases. The first was a challenge to the imposition by the London Borough of Ealing of what's called a public spaces protection order. And in the second, the High Court granted a final antisocial behaviour injunction uh, sought by Birmingham City Council also under the 2014 Act. And the cases raise real issues as to how you balance the rights under Articles 9, 10 and 11 of the ECHR and uh, the Article 8 rights, perhaps, of those who are the subject matter of the protests. And in both these cases, as we will see, the courts actually had little hesitation in, on the facts at least, preferring the Article 8 rights of those affected by the protests. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the cases? Yes, the first one of Dolgeriu and the London Borough of Ealing involved uh, a series of long-running protests outside the Mary Stopes Centre in Ealing uh, that offers termination counselling and services. And the appellants were all affiliated to a Christian group called the Good Council Network, or GCN, And they were and are strongly opposed to termination on moral and religious grounds. And they organised prayer vigils and attendances outside uh, the centre. And they would attempt on occasions, at least, to engage with women who were coming to the centre. And they would offer counselling or assistance to them and try to seek to persuade them against having a termination. That would be going on for a while. And then the pro-choice group called Sister Supporter started to organise counter-protests outside the same centre. And then in 2017, they organised a petition to ban GCN from protesting there. Now, the London Borough of Ealing produced a draft uh, PSPO, 
public spaces protection order with a safe zone around the centre where protests would not be permitted. There was then an online consultation which demonstrated very strong support for the exclusion zone. And so on the basis of that, in April 2018, the borough exercised its powers under Section 59 of the Antisocial Behaviour Crime and Policing Act uh, to make the PSPO. That imposed a 100-metre exclusion zone and it prohibited a really a very wide range of protest-type activities. It included protesting, in other words, engaging in any act of approval or disapproval or an attempted act of approval or disapproval with respect to issues relating to abortion services by any means. And the terms of the order said, this includes but is not limited to graphic, verbal or written means, prayer or counselling. So on what grounds did the uh, GCN bring its challenge? Well, they challenged the order under a a wide number of uh, reasons, particularly on the grounds that the terms of the order were unreasonable and that they constituted an unjustified interference with Articles 9, 10, 11 and 14. Uh, There were a number of technical challenges under the Act, which perhaps we don't need to worry about too much uh, for today's discussion. And what did the High Court find? Well, the High Court looked at the Article 8 rights, or the the claimed Article 8 rights, of those visiting the centre. It had little doubt in finding that those Article 8 rights were engaged and that the protection of the right to privacy of those people attending the centre was a legitimate aim. Uh, It found that the restrictions that the council sought to impose were proportionate, And it rejected the argument uh, that a less restrictive alternative to a PSPO uh, would have been equally effective. And then there was an appeal to that. So what were the views of the Court of Appeal? Well, again, on appeal, the Court of Appeal had little hesitation in confirming that a woman's right to privacy was engaged. Uh, Although, of course, people have to go out in public to visit the centre, the Court said that the reasonable desire and legitimate expectation that their visits to the centre would not receive any more publicity than was inevitably involved in accessing and leaving the centre across a public space and highway, uh, did attract protection under Article 8. Uh, It also said, perhaps uncontroversially, that the decision of a woman whether or not to have an abortion is an intensely personal and sensitive matter, and they have no doubt that that fell within the notion of a private life within the meaning of Article 8. They then went to look at the significance of the claimant's Article 9 rights, the right to religion. And there are two uh, competing principles here, uh, both of which emerge from the European court decisions. Uh, The first, from the case of Barankovic and Russia, uh, is one where the European Court of Human Rights said that the freedom to manifest one's religion includes the right to try and convince one's neighbour. But another European court decision, the case of Van Schneidel in the Netherlands, says that Article 8, sorry, Article 9, does not always guarantee the right to behave in the public sphere in a way which is dictated to by your belief. Um, having thought and, and, and addressed its mind to that, the Court of Appeal uh, emphasised that those rights are important, the rights to um, freedom of uh, expression of one's religious beliefs, but went on to conclude the rights under Articles 8, 9, 10 and 11 are all of equal importance in the sense that none has automatic precedence over the other. 
and that where there is a tension between those rights, what the courts have to do is uh, make, make an intense focus on the comparative importance of the rights being claimed in the particular case. Now, having gone through all that legal process, they look very carefully at the facts. And on the facts, uh, importantly, the Court of Appeal did find that actual harm was being caused to some of the people seeking to attend the centre. They rejected GCN's argument that their actions were no more than a protest causing irritation, annoyance, offence, shock or disturbance, and found that their actions actually had a detrimental effect on the quality of life of those visiting the centre, which was or was likely to be of a persisting and continuing nature. And they found there was evidence of lasting psychological and emotional harm to those surface users. And it was very much on the basis of that finding of harm that it it upheld the decision of the High Court uh, to um, allow that public space prevention order to to be put in place. And the other case that that we mentioned, Birmingham City Council and ASFAR, concerned a a long-running and bitter dispute between some parents and others and Anderton Park Primary School in Birmingham about its teaching in relation to LGBT relationships. Can you talk us through the issues in that case? Yes, this I think is a case that received a lot of media attention and I'm sure a lot of people will have heard of it. It was the the protest outside a school in Birmingham by uh, predominantly Muslim parents who objected to what they thought their children were being taught at school. Their objections were on religious grounds and the claim raises very interesting arguments about the rights of parents to influence what ideas their children are exposed to whilst they're at school. However, the judge did not decide that those matters were directly relevant to whether or not the injunction should be granted. So the first point to note is that in this case, it's almost from the legal perspective, a mirror image of the Dolgeriu case, because in this case, the council were going to court to seek a prohibition uh, via an injunction, rather than uh, a prohibition uh, being challenged by the protester group. Uh, They had decided, having failed to mediate any kind of agreement between the parents and the school, to seek an injunction. And this was because of really loud, uh, persistent protests outside the primary school against the perception that the school was teaching the children that uh, LGBT relationships were normal and or healthy. Uh, Interestingly, the courts found that the teaching in fact, did not go anything like as far as was being alleged by the protesters outside the school. And there was no small irony in the judge finding, as part of uh, the judgment, that one of the speeches given by one of the imams who'd been invited to talk uh, contained wild and untrue statements made in front of a large crowd, including children, The judge found that the children were exposed to sexualised language going far beyond anything that they were actually exposed to in the classroom uh, of the school and the controversial teachings of the school. Now, the judge accepted that there was ample evidence that the protests had really had a very significant and adverse impact on teachers and pupils and local residents to the extent that uh, one local resident who was gay uh, felt harassed Uh, and had considered even moving house. And 21 staff members had reported health difficulties 
associated with stress and the noise of the protests had had a disruptive and intrusive impact on the children and on their lessons. So having made, made all those findings or, or noted all, all that evidence, the judge said that although the legislation is aimed primarily to cover antisocial behaviour, this did not exclude the legislation from being used to prevent antisocial behaviour in the context of an otherwise legitimate protest. Uh, what he went on to say was that uh, a great deal of antisocial behaviour consists of spoken words and public assemblies, and such conduct may well represent an unwarranted interference with the rights of others, particularly those under Article 8. And then the judge went on to say, you started, Deborah, with a reference to the freedom to speak offensively. Mm -hmm. uh, the judge said the freedom to speak offensively, and obviously he's referring back to the Redmond Bate case, though important, is not a, an unqualified right. It is not feasible to read in any narrow limitation so as to exclude protest. The judge then went on to say that protest is a protean term with no fixed meaning and protest is not in and of itself legitimate. So what the judge was clear, saying very clearly is what one cannot claim carte blanche under the umbrella of protest to say whatever one likes if it impacts uh, so severely on the Article 8 rights of other people. Uh, the judge went on to confirm that really it was the children who had a right to an education under Article 2 of Protocol 1 to the ECHR, and the parents could not rely on that article to exclude content from the curriculum that they personally found to be offensive. And there was then, I think, a third issue, which was the necessity to grant the injunction. How did the court approach this? Well, he made a number of important factual findings in the case, and we, of course, must always be aware that these cases are grounded very importantly in the facts that the, the, judge, the judges find in the individual case. He found that uh, the protests were both inaccurate in what they were saying was being taught, uh, they were offensive, and they were highly intrusive in the way in which they were conducted, including the use of megaphones and the relentless nature of the protests. And he found uh, that there really was a significant and unpleasant impact on the staff, the residents and the children. And so it was when he came to balance the impact of the protests against the rights of the protester that one really strikes this very difficult question of balance. And I think it's fair to say that it's really in the context of Article 10 where these balances are most difficult to strike. Um, if you've got an Article 11 case where you're really looking at the freedom of assembly and the police are looking at imposing restrictions on the basis of the size or the safety, um, that's not often a difficult balance to strike. But the, the problems arise where somebody is claiming that they are adversely affected by the protest. And the court has to look very critically at the extent to which that is a genuine interference with their Article 8 rights rather than them simply being offended uh, by the tone or content of the protest. What the judge found on, on that balancing process was as follows. He said a key part of the balancing process will be to assess the weight to be given to the particular kind of speech 
and activity under consideration and to the specific rights that compete with them. The jurisprudence reveals a scale of values. And this is an important aspect of Article 10 that often is is overlooked. Uh, The judge went on to say that the scale of values emphasises that speech on political or ethical issues or speech which contributes to a controversial debate on matters of public interest or concern will normally call for a high degree of protection. But at the other end, speech that has little inherent value because it's used for the purposes of intimidation or blackmail or extortion or something like that. And so what the courts are increasingly recognising in striking this difficult balance is not the topic uh, that the protest is about, because that is, is in a sense sacrosanct, but whether the protest is engaging matters of important issues of public interest or political or ethical issues. And on that issue, the judge said, in general terms, I can accept that the 2014 Act creates a high hurdle, but I reject the submission that the court is powerless to grant an order protecting fellow citizens from liable distress or other consequences of harassment or antisocial behaviour, falling short of that which would justify prosecution. So importantly, what the judge was saying there is that the content of the protest uh, might not involve, for example, hate speech or speech that would uh, amount to a criminal offence. But nevertheless, an injunction could still be granted to prevent that protest on the basis that it was antisocial. The judge went on to say, in a democratic society, protest must be allowed. But that does not carry with it a right repeatedly to cause distress to primary school children by aggressively shouting through megaphones or microphones using amplification or to inflict months of distress on teachers and local residents, causing anxiety to the staff and leading some residents to consider selling up their homes. So the judge really there is identifying very clearly the impact on the Article 8 rights of the teachers and the local residents and the rights to an education of the children. Turning to the rights of the protesters, the judge found that, and I quote, some manifestations of the protests appear to me to have been positively harmful to children whose parents or carers have allowed them to become involved. So having made that observation, the judge found the exclusion zone and the restrictions that that came with it would not prevent protest, but rather they were targeted on the most harmful aspects of it. So really, when you hear what the judge has got to say about just how serious the impact was and the facts that he found, it's perhaps not surprising that he struck the balance as he did uh, in favour of granting the injunction. Uh, And so the final injunction imposed was of a physical exclusion zone around the school uh, and preventing specific acts of antisocial behaviour. But uh, the precise terms of the prohibitions are the matters, I think, of agreement. I don't know whether the parties have managed to reach agreement on that yet. Uh, So looking ahead, the courts will need to take on a careful balancing um, exercise in each case. What challenges do you foresee for the courts in doing that? Well, both of these cases involved long-running protests where there was clear evidence that harm was being caused, either to the subject matter, the subjects of the protest, or perhaps, as we've heard, to local residents, almost collateral damage to other people. I think the courts are likely to take a very different approach to this 
exercise of balancing rights, where the protests in question are more limited in duration, or where the harm caused to others is less clear, or perhaps the link to harm being caused to others is less clear. But I think it is important to see that the courts now, in relation to these two different aspects of the Act, on two different occasions, have clearly endorsed the use of these antisocial behaviour powers, uh, drafted and intended by the government to tackle use and broken glass and uh, vandalism and that sort of thing, to prevent what is undeniably genuinely legitimate protest activity, or perhaps I should say legitimate and genuine protest, but to limit the ways in which the protesters can carry out their protest actions. So there's, a, I think, a, a message that can be drawn from both these cases, and it, and it comes really from the judgments in, in those two cases. Uh, and that is that looking forwards, there's really, I think, a four-stage process that the decision maker has to have in their mind going forwards. Stage one is to identify the rights that are engaged, and engaged on all sides, not simply the protesters or the so the subject matter of the protest or the local community, but, but to look at all the parties. And then to remember and to record, again, whether this is a council or the police or whoever it is that's potentially intruding on these rights, to identify the starting point, which is that those eight, Article 8, 9, 10 and 11 rights are in principle of equal importance generally. And then to focus on the comparative importance of those rights being claimed in the individual case. That will be stage three. And fourthly, to seek to identify the least intrusive action or the least restrictive action, which as far as is possible will allow all the parties to exercise their rights. Understanding, perhaps, that there will be occasions when in the individual case, the importance of one party's rights may mean that they will need to be prioritised over the rights of the others, perhaps. That may in some cases be the protesters, and in some cases it may be the rights of the uh, community or the subject matter of the protest. And, and, and I think if decision makers focus on that four-stage process, they ought to come up with a decision which is robust and one hopes does strike more or less the right balance. It may not be the balance that everyone would, would want, uh, and obviously you won't be able to keep everyone happy all of the time. But at least if you have gone about that exercise in good faith, one hopes that your decision ultimately will be found to be compliant with, with the Act. So are there any further thoughts on, on this issue that you want to share? Yes, Deborah. Well, the interesting thing about these two cases, and the, I think the wider interest that they have, is that although in both cases the protesters were unsuccessful in their challenges, it is important that these types of decisions are challenged. And of course, while they were unsuccessful in this case, there will be cases where the challenges are successful. And if public authorities aren't made to think carefully about these balancing exercises and aren't on occasionally challenged and aren't on occasionally successfully challenged, what we would see is a gradual shrinking 
of the right to protest, if that's the right expression, and a gradual shrinking of this scope to protest. And so whilst these two challenges were both unsuccessful, I think they raise very important issues. And one can't really um, disagree with the claimants for wanting to challenge uh, the restrictions here. Mm. Um, There may have been a failure to mediate uh, successfully in advance, but these are very important issues raised in these cases. Thank you very much. Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.